At the beginning of World War II in 1940, the Nazi Germans invaded Denmark in their long campaign to dominate continental Europe. Two German scientists, Max von Laue and James Frank, had long been outspoken opponents to Nazism. Both of them were Nobel laureates, whom had left their homes in Germany to conduct research with Niels Bohr at his institute in Copenhagen, Denmark. After the Nazi invasion of Denmark, they knew that they would have to flee immediately. But what to do about their Nobel Prizes? The Nazis had made it illegal to take any gold, including the Nobel Prizes, which were made of pure gold, out of the country, on penalty of prosecution. They were just as worried that the Nazis would find and steal their Nobel Prizes if they left the gold medals behind. With the help of their colleague, George de Hevzy, they hatched an ingenious plan. They used a chemical solution of aqua regia, a strong acid, to dissolve the gold of their Nobel Prize medals. They left the solution in a flask, with the gold particles suspended within on a shelf of the lab, and promptly fled the country for America. When the Nazis burst into the lab, they found nothing but shelves and shelves of multicolored chemical solutions. Since none of the chemistry made any sense to them, they overlooked the nondescript black flask of chemical solution, which was, of course, the gold of the dissolved Nobel Prize medals. That flask sat undisturbed on the shelf for years, in fact through the entire span of the war. And when the war was won, and Denmark was once again free, the scientists returned and found the solution undisturbed right where they had left it. The gold was precipitated out of the solution, recast into the Nobel Prize medals, and returned to its rightful owners. E is equal mc square showed that very small amount of mass may be converted into a very large amount of energy. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Once Hitler was democratically elected as Chancellor of Germany in the winter of 1933, he and the Nazis began their inexorable seizure of absolute power in Germany, and eventually across all of Europe. Very soon, the government of Germany nationalized all industrial production and abolished civil rights. In spring of 1933, the Nazis initiated a national boycott of Jewish business and also instigated a pogrom a sanctioned outbreak of persecution against Jews and others deemed undesirable by the Nazi state. In the next week, all non-Aryan civil servants were dismissed from their government jobs and other positions of authority, which included university faculty. Some universities lost a third or even one half of their professors as a result of this action. Many great scientists in Germany took their own lives as a result. Dr. Enrico Fermi was one of the greatest scientists alive during that time, and that's saying a lot. His scientific career began in Italy, 
where he and his associates studied many of the phenomena related to radioactivity. As with many people in Europe, the rise of fascist ideologies presented a serious problem to Fermi and his family, to put it lightly. Enrico Fermi had a wife, Laura, and two children, Nella and Giulio. Like the Nazis in Germany, Mussolini and his fascists in Italy were fanatically anti-Semitic. This was not a direct threat to Fermi himself, because he was not Jewish. However, Laura, his wife, was descended from Jews, and so were his children. The ideology of Nazism and fascism held the doctrine that even having one Jewish grandparent qualified an individual as Jewish, even if one had not been raised according to Jewish customs, and even if the individual did not adhere to the Jewish religion. So Dr. Fermi knew that, for the sake of his wife and children, he had to get them out of Italy. However, escape would be perilous and difficult. The Italian fascist government did not allow you to take more than a small amount of money or possessions out of the country at any one time. If Fermi and his family were forced to flee, they would surrender their family's wealth and no matter where they fled would be left poor and destitute. An unforeseen solution to the problem appeared when Dr. Fermi paid a visit to Copenhagen, Denmark in 1938, before its fall to Germany. Dr. Niels Bohr, another famous scientific peer which we mentioned in our first episode, pulled him aside, informing him that he would receive the Nobel Prize that year. Now, it is not customary to make an early disclosure to a future recipient of the Nobel Prize before the public announcement, but they both knew that the Nobel Prize came with a cash award of $1 million, and Professor Bohr knew that this would be enough for the Fermis to make up for the possessions and property they would leave behind in Italy once they fled. When the Fermis received the public announcement that Enrico was to receive the Nobel Prize in a ceremony in Stockholm, their affairs were already in order. They paid a visit to a jewelry store and bought as many diamonds and gold pieces as they dared to wear and boarded a ship for Sweden. From there, after the ceremony, the Fermis would receive their million dollars and thereafter travel straight to America. The rise of the Nazi regime disrupted another scientific team based out of Berlin, Germany, that of Dr. Otto Hahn and Dr. Liza Meitner. They were perhaps an unlikely scientific couple. Otto Hahn was a gregarious, friendly, talented German chemist, while Liza Meitner was a shy, reserved, and brilliant Austrian Jewish physicist. Hahn was happily married, but not to Meitner. She never married. Hahn and Meitner found that they made a highly productive and successful scientific team, their respective skills and advantages perfectly complementing one another, and their combined efforts, even in the midst of the chaos of the Holocaust, would reveal the phenomenon of nuclear fission. With the Nazi rise to power, Meitner was fired from her professorship at the University of Berlin. She was forced to flee Germany, and Bohr and others helped to arrange her escape and safe passage to Sweden, a neutral country. This was a very difficult transition for Meitner. She hated leaving behind her home and career to move to Sweden with its long, cold winters and where she had difficulty with basic communication in the unfamiliar language. Nevertheless, Hahn and Meitner remained in contact, writing letters to continue their scientific collaboration by mail. 
During this time of Dr. Meitner's exile in the year 1938, Dr. Hahn had been conducting research on uranium, the primary radioactive element in the pitch blend that Pierre and Marie Curie had so painstakingly researched. Dr. Hahn was examining the chemical byproducts of uranium radiation and was observing strange anomalous results. Hahn had found that uranium produced a byproduct that he assumed was radium, only three atomic numbers away from uranium, the type of byproduct that was easily explained through the emission of well-understood alpha and beta radiation. But try as he might, all of his chemical analyses indicated that instead the byproduct was the chemically similar barium, a row higher on the periodic table than radium. All his tests indicated that it was barium, not radium, that was being produced by his uranium experiments. But to him, given his understanding of radiation, the presence of barium made no sense. Despite every effort to explain the source of this anomaly, Dr. Hahn could come to no other conclusion other than that uranium was decaying into barium through a mysterious, unknown mechanism. In exasperation, Hahn explained these experiments in his letters to Meitner, and the two agreed that his empirical results could not be denied. But they could not initially explain what exactly was happening to convert uranium to barium, which was so far away on the periodic table. After reading the letter, Meitner went outside and took a long walk in the snowy woods of Sweden, pondering this enigma. And by the time she returned, she had formulated the correct explanation for this appearance of barium. Imagine a uranium nucleus. It's like a droplet of water floating in empty space. Now imagine that a neutron, a neutrally charged piece discharged from another nucleus, comes flying in and hits the droplet. And that droplet absorbs the neutron and increases in size. The nucleus gets a little bigger. But a uranium nucleus is already large. So large, in fact, that it is just barely stable, right on the verge of instability. That neutron it just absorbed pushes it over the edge of nuclear stability, and that droplet begins to bulge and wobble and soon fragments into two separate pieces of nuclear matter. Now these two fragments of the nucleus, being initially very close to one another, are both positively charged, and two closely spaced positive charges will repel one another with a great deal of force. These two fragments of uranium nucleus then blast away from one another at incredible speeds, reaching nearly one-thirtieth the speed of light and releasing millions of times more energy than even the most vigorous chemical reactions. The two fragments of the uranium nucleus then snag some electrons and become two new atoms, one barium atom, which Hahn observed, and one atom of krypton, which seeped out of Hahn's laboratory and into the atmosphere. Liza Meitner figured all this out during her walk in the woods, and excitedly wrote back to Otto Hahn. They agreed that they must publish this theory at once, and when they did, the news rocked the scientific world. 
When thinking about the splitting uranium nucleus, other scientists noticed the similarity to the division of bacterial cells, and borrowed the microbiology term fission to describe the splitting of a nucleus. It was news of nuclear fission that made Enrico Fermi cup his hands high in that physics tower of Columbia University, saying, quote, a little bomb like that and it would all disappear, end quote. He was explaining the magnitude of energy that would be released in a nuclear reaction of just a few pounds of uranium. In the spring of 1938, the Germans annexed Austria in their first seizure of foreign soil in what they called the Anschluss. Later, in September of the same year, the Western European democracies surrendered the Czech Sudetenland in a mistaken belief that such a capitulation would finally appease the Germans. The appeasement outraged Winston Churchill, who was not yet Prime Minister of Britain. The British government didn't want to risk their expensive, fragile colonial empire by involving themselves in another war and the French, who had suffered the greatest damage to their country during World War I, were horrified at the possibility of fighting another costly conflict with their eastern neighbor Germany. The seizure of part of their territory would destabilize the democratic nation of Czechoslovakia, and the Germans soon moved in to occupy the rest of Czech territory, claiming to restore order. Then in November of 1938, Kristallnacht, the worst pogrom of all, began in German-controlled territories. 30,000 Jews were arrested and deported to urban ghettos, which had been specifically set up to contain the Jews. They would eventually be shipped like cattle to the concentration and death camps the Nazis had built across their empire. One year after Kristallnacht, the Germans invaded Poland, an act of aggression which even the appeasing Western democracies could no longer abide, and finally sparked World War II. The French and British put up a valiant initial resistance while the United States tarried, reluctant to become involved in another world war halfway across the globe. World War I was a brutal and costly campaign of trench warfare, where months passed and men died by the thousands to gain or lose a few meters of land along the battlefront. The outbreak of World War II opened with a new strategy employed by the Germans, Blitzkrieg, a fast, shocking deployment of infantry and armored divisions that overwhelmed their opposition before defensive trenches could be fully prepared. Many people don't realize the insidious contribution that the science of chemistry had into this new form of warfare. Drugs, especially crystal methamphetamine, played a significant role in the success of Germany's strategy of Blitzkrieg. A soldier who was given crystal meth didn't have intermediate-term need to sleep or eat while on the drug. He also did not feel the effects of weariness and could march at speeds that were unheard of before its adoption in warfare. For instance, once the invasion of Poland began, the Polish strategists began ordering their soldiers to dig trenches along a front that they assumed would take the Germans a certain number of days to reach, with plenty of time to dig in and prepare for the assault. Then, much to their surprise, the German army arrived in half the expected time. 
having marched nonstop without rest or food before the defensive preparations were complete. Thus, the Polish defensive lines were steamrolled by the German forces, and victory for the Germans was ensured. If you thought the Germans took a lot of crystal meth, their magnitude of usage was nothing compared to the Japanese use of drugs by their soldiers. Crystal meth was part of a fighting Japanese soldier's daily rations. Now another insidious side effect of crystal meth is that it temporarily removes any sense of inhibition or empathy. This enabled the Japanese to commit unspeakable violence in the lands that they conquered. I really do mean unspeakable. I do not dare to speak out loud of the atrocities that Japanese soldiers committed against the citizens of China, Korea, the Philippines, captured allied soldiers, and the civilian peoples of other territories that fell under Japanese control. Now, if you wish to risk being haunted by those nightmares, you yourself can look up and read about places such as Nanking, Manila, or Bataan. Crystal meth also removes fear and partially explains the infamous lack of fear the Japanese soldiers displayed when fighting in the Pacific. Of course, consumption of crystal meth offered the military advantages of the suppression of tiredness, hunger, and empathy. But in the long run, the lack of sleep and food takes a tremendous toll on the bodies of users. But with Poland now subdued, the Germans turned their blitzkrieg tactics against France. Like Poland, the French were knocked back on their heels by the unfamiliar tactics. Although the French opposed the Germans valiantly, the memories of the previous World War combined with a staggering initial loss of territory, the French political authorities despaired and lost heart. Six months after the outbreak of World War II, on May 10, 1940, the unthinkable happened. The mighty nation of France, the greatest hope for the freedom of Europe, surrendered to Germany. the Germans also overran other free nations of Europe, like Belgium and the Netherlands. In April of 1940, the Nazis invaded Denmark, where Niels Bohr and his team of scientists resided. For years, Niels Bohr had been helping threatened and refugee scientists and their families escape the Nazi threat. He resettled some of them in Denmark, Britain, and other European countries, but many of them funneled into the United States, and some of those would eventually join the Manhattan Project which would allow American science to thrive for decades to come. In contrast, most of the Axis scientists who are safe to remain behind in the quickly expanding German and Italian empire derided non-classical scientific ideas such as relativity and quantum mechanics as, quote, Jewish physics, end quote. This attitude, of course, had a crippling effect on German scientific progress, as these new discoveries do correctly describe nature. However, one German scientist, deeply familiar with the work of his discredited Jewish colleagues, knew such notions of opposition to relativity and quantum mechanics for the rubbish they were. Dr. Werner Heisenberg, once a student of Niels Bohr, had already made significant contributions to quantum mechanics, 
including his famous matrix formulation, as well as the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Dr. Heisenberg had risen in the ranks of the German scientific hierarchy and would soon be appointed as the head of the German nuclear weapons project, tasked with the creation of an atomic bomb. A few years after the Nazis had taken control of Denmark, Dr. Heisenberg returned to Copenhagen, the sanctuary of his former teacher, Niels Bohr, and met with him privately. Accounts differ as to what exactly happened during that meeting, but it seems as though Dr. Heisenberg told Dr. Bohr in no uncertain terms that the Germans were beginning to design and create nuclear reactors. Heisenberg handed Bohr a drawing of a Nazi heavy water nuclear reactor, which could be used to create fissile material for a bomb. Dr. Heisenberg, as he later stood before a post-war military tribunal, insisted that it was intended as a warning for the Allies. However, Niels Bohr, his former professor, interpreted the exchange as a threat. After Heisenberg left, Bohr concluded that now even he, who had helped so many to escape before, was himself now in great personal danger and would have to flee with his family. He eventually snuck out of Denmark and traveled to the United States to continue his research and opposition to the Nazis. After the war, Dr. Heisenberg would be forced to stand and give an account for his actions during the Nazi regime. He insisted that he had never agreed with Nazi ideology and that his role as the leader of the German atomic bomb project was done for no other reason than patriotism for his country. In fact, he said that he even sabotaged the German scientific effort in later stages of the war when he realized the full evil of the Nazis. And he insisted that his efforts were partially responsible for the fact that the Germans never did succeed in the creation of an atomic bomb, thanks to him. But Niels Bohr would never believe a word Heisenberg professed about his innocence after that fateful meeting between an old teacher and his former student in Copenhagen. Clearly the possibility of using nuclear fission for a bomb was being considered by the scientists very early in the war, but a more peaceful possibility was also being considered, especially by Fermi. The possibility of using nuclear fission as a means to generate electrical power. By this point, Fermi and his family had begun settling into American life. He set to work vigorously learning the English language and American culture. He was eventually offered a research position at the University of Chicago. It was there that Fermi and his team would set to work building the world's first man-made nuclear reactor in the year 1942. Uranium exists in nature as two types, if you will, called isotopes. Isotopes of an element have different numbers of neutrons in their nucleus, and thus have different masses. Uranium-238 is the most common isotope, existing in over 99% purity of naturally occurring uranium. The other isotope, uranium-235, exists with less than 1% abundance. However, it is the latter isotope, the rare one, that must be isolated and purified in a process now known as enrichment in order to produce material used in an atomic bomb. Why can't uranium-238 be used to make an atomic bomb? It is because fission in uranium-238 can only be induced through very high-energy neutrons. Now, when a chain reaction occurs, the neutrons that appear from the fissioned nucleus do not possess enough energy to make that happen. These medium-energy neutrons will encounter and get absorbed 
by your uranium-238 nucleus, converting it into uranium-239, but not causing it to split. Therefore, in natural uranium, most of the neutrons will not cause fission in uranium-235 because most neutrons have been absorbed by uranium-238. However, if the neutron is traveling slowly enough, then it will not be captured by uranium-238, but will be absorbed by uranium-235. The uranium nucleus may capture the neutron, like two water droplets merging together. This bumps the uranium-235 nucleus above the threshold of stability, and that can cause it to split and release energy. Fermi realized that if there was a way to slow down neutrons involved in nuclear reactions, then you could use non-enriched uranium, make it undergo nuclear fission, and produce energy. This is the premise behind a nuclear reactor. But how do you slow down neutrons? At the time, scientists had discovered at least two materials that could slow down neutrons for a nuclear reactor. The first is graphite, and the second is heavy water. Graphite is the dark, greasy material at the core of a pencil. It is essentially solid carbon. Heavy water is a form of water that contains isotopes of hydrogen, called deuterium, in its molecules, changing its weight. A small fraction of naturally occurring water contains deuterium, and by running an electric current through water in a process called electrolysis, one can isolate the heavy water from ordinary water. Now, since the Germans didn't have easy access to graphite material, and actually didn't know that graphite could be used in nuclear reactions, Dr. Heisenberg and his associates in the German Atomic Bomb Project elected to build a heavy water reactor. Germany had recently conquered the country of Norway, where a hydroelectric dam had once supplied all of Europe with a supply of heavy water, and would be confiscated to provide Heisenberg and the Nazis with the heavy water they would need, which they intended to use to breed plutonium for use in an atomic bomb. Fortunately, thanks to a secret operation executed by British and Norwegian commandos, the hydroelectric dam in Norway was blown up, and all of its heavy water supplies were destroyed. Also, ships laden with heavy water being transported back to Germany were sunk. These heroic actions provided a significant setback for the German effort to produce a nuclear weapon. The Americans, on the other hand, had access to abundant supplies of both graphite and uranium. Fermi began the design of the first nuclear reactor, which he named Chicago Pile 1. It was about two and a half times as tall as a person, and was an ellipsoidal shape, like a tomato. Within the reactor, large blocks of graphite would be stacked in the proper shape, and within the blocks of graphite were drilled cylindrical holes where plugs of uranium could be inserted. The entire structure was held together by a large wooden frame. And yes, you heard correctly. The first nuclear reactor was made largely out of wood. Fermi and his scientists constructed the reactor in a squash court inside of a gymnasium at the University of Chicago. At the scientists' request, the university football team was conscripted to help them haul around the huge quantities of graphite, uranium, and wood, and also to assist with stacking the blocks and building the wooden scaffold. As the weeks passed, shipments of graphite and uranium arrived by truck which the teams laid block by block, layer by layer, to form the spheroidal reactor in the middle of the gymnasium at the University of Chicago. 
As they built, the scientists left slots in the side of the pile to insert the control rods, theoretically necessary in any reactor to prevent meltdown. Fermi's control rods were simply wooden boards with sheets of cadmium metal nailed to them. Cadmium is a toxic heavy metal that, when oxidized, is used by artists to make blood-red paint. Cadmium also absorbs stray neutrons, capturing them before they can undergo a chain reaction. A substance, like cadmium, which absorbs stray neutrons, is called a neutron poison and can be inserted into a nuclear reactor to control its rate of energy production and to prevent a meltdown. Of course, there are many more dangers associated with nuclear reactors. One phenomenon which few people have heard about is the deadly reactor flea. Recall when we discussed nuclear fission, how a nucleus splits in two, and the smaller fragments rush apart at a high speed. It so turns out that the fission of a single uranium atom produces enough energy to make a grain of sand jump. But what if that grain of sand is made from the nuclear fuel itself? If one of the reactor fuel rods were to rupture and a piece as small as a grain of sand or a dust boat or even smaller were to break off. Then the fissioning nuclei would make that small speck jump around the room like a flea. Its motion would be random, of course, but it would only be a matter of time before one door or another opens and the reactor flea jumps out into the spaces that humans inhabit. It would jump around the rooms and hallways until it fell into someone's coffee or into a plate of food where someone would inadvertently consume it. The reactor flea would then contaminate that person's body, bombarding their organs and tissues with deadly radiation. That person would be dead within days weeks at best. The scientists building the pile did not know about reactor fleas, although they did know that something like a reactor meltdown was possible, although as yet they had not coined that word. Nevertheless, they took precautions to prevent such a catastrophic possibility. Aside from the multiple manually controlled cadmium-plated control rods inserted into the pile, they also had a control rod attached by a string from an electric motor, and the motor was wired to a Geiger counter, an instrument for measuring levels of radioactivity. The instrument was rigged to winch the string and pull the control rod into the reactor should the intensity of radiation ever rise above a preset threshold. Additionally, the scientists had another control rod hanging from a pulley in the ceiling, the rope's other end attached to a railing of the cork's balcony. Should the chain reaction begin to rise out of control, a scientist would be standing by holding an axe and could chop the rope, dropping the control rod into the reactor. And as a last defense, should all of these other measures fail, they had also organized a suicide squad, a team of scientists armed with jugs of cadmium sulfate. If all other measures failed to stop a runaway nuclear reaction, the suicide squad could carry their jugs out on top of the pile and pour the liquid of neutron poison directly into the reactor. In an interesting anecdote, Dr. Fermi was very displeased that the jugs had been brought into the room with the reactor, and was worried that if someone inadvertently tipped the jugs over or broke them, 
and the liquid flowed under the reactor, the entire pile would have to be rebuilt. The morning of December 2nd, 1942 came when the reactor was completed and the experiment would finally be conducted. If the reactor worked, then it would be brought to critical. That is, it would produce enough neutrons that the fission would become self-sustaining. The scientists arrived early in the morning and used their keys to open the padlocks that held the control rods inside the reactor. They were justifiably worried that some interloper might wander into the squash court and remove or steal the control rods, triggering a meltdown. As Fermi and the scientists prepared to bring the reactor to critical, an audience arrived, including Dr. Leo Zillard and a number of other famous scientific researchers. They crowded onto the squash court's balconies on either side of the wooden-framed black ellipsoid made from graphite and uranium. The scientists had set up a number of instruments, including recorders that registered the intensity of radiation and a Geiger counter, which made a click every time it detected a stray radioactive particle. Once the setup stage was complete, Fermi gave the order to remove all control rods except one, and a scientist on the court below could pull the control rod in or out by precise measures based on a yardstick that had been placed alongside it. Take the control rod halfway out, Fermi ordered. The control rod operator obeyed. Within moments, the instruments jumped up in the measurement of radiation intensity. The clicks of the Geiger counter registered more frequently. The quills of the recorders crept upwards. But the instruments soon leveled off. The pile was still subcritical. Move the control rod out six inches, Fermi ordered. Again, the instruments intensified for a few moments before leveling off, still subcritical. Fermi pulled out his slide rule and performed calculations for several minutes before saying, another six inches. This time, when the instruments increased in intensity, there was a sudden loud bang. The scientists realized that the sound had come from a safety control rod attached to the string and motor which had been automatically triggered by the rising radiation. Everyone breathed a sigh of relief as the reaction subsided, and Fermi said, I'm hungry, let's go to lunch. They relocked the control rods into place and went to lunch. In a couple of hours, they returned and resumed their former activities. All of the control rods, except the one beside the yardstick, was unlocked and pulled back out of the pile. Another six inches, ordered Fermi, carefully and painstakingly calculating with his slide rule. This is going to do it, he said to the man next to him. Now it will become self-sustaining. The recorder will climb and continue to climb. It will not level off. Indeed, as Fermi predicted, the quill and the recorder continued to climb, slowly, gaining speed. The clicking of the Geiger counter came more and more rapidly. With a grin, Dr. Fermi raised his hand to the audience and said, the pile has gone critical. To the outbreak of applause, he then turned back to gaze at his reactor. Remember how, in the nuclear chain reaction, for every one neutron that hits a uranium nucleus, three more neutrons emerge and can fly off in any direction and split more uranium nuclei. Therefore, if one uranium nucleus splits, then it can make three neutrons, and each of those can hit three more nuclei, making nine neutrons, hitting nine nuclei, releasing 27 neutrons, hitting 27 nuclei, releasing 81 neutrons, you get the idea. What is it that keeps the reaction from completely running away? Two things. One, 
It is possible for neutrons to escape through the edge of the reactor, and two, the neutrons are absorbed by the control rods. But now that the reaction had gone critical, there was not enough control rod to absorb all the neutrons. So they were free to travel all over the reactor, splitting uranium nuclei and releasing energy. It would have taken a while, but if left in that state for only one and a half hours, Fermi's nuclear reactor would have melted down, creating a Chernobyl right in the heart of the University of Chicago. everyone inside that squash court would have long since died. But as the minutes ticked by, Dr. Fermi merely stood there, calmly watching that reactor. As the neutrons surged, the quill arose off the edge of its measurable range. The clicking from the Geiger counter intensified to a hum and finally a roar as the invisible swarm of neutrons blasted out of the nuclear furnace. The people began to wonder why Fermi didn't shut the reactor off. They stood anxiously. Another minute passed, and the audience began to murmur to one another, asking when Fermi would end the experiment. But Dr. Fermi had to be sure. He had to be certain. Finally, when the tension was almost too much to bear, Fermi ordered the operator below to push in the control rod, and for everyone to push in the other control rods. As they did so, and the reaction began to slow, the recorder quill fell back to zero, and the Geiger counter stopped roaring and returned to the occasional click. The danger had passed, and better yet, the experiment was a success. For the first time in history, mankind had built a self-sustaining nuclear reactor. For the first time, humans controlled the immense power of the atomic nucleus. Next time on The Atomic Bomb, Albert Einstein writes a letter to President Roosevelt informing American leadership of the possibility of an immensely powerful atomic bomb, and worse, the danger that Hitler's scientists might build it first. In one of the greatest coordinated scientific efforts in history, the scientific community and the American military join forces in the deserts of New Mexico to begin a top secret project to build an atomic bomb before the Nazis at all costs. Thanks for listening. The Atomic Bomb Podcast was written, presented, and edited by me, Blaine Vitopka. Special thanks for edits by Gary Vitopka. Original logo and banner by Inova Enterprise. Additional credits and licensing information can be found in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider engaging in further discussion or making a donation at my thinkspot.com page. Username, Elvatopka, spelled L-V-O-T-A-P-K-A. You can also donate or subscribe at buymeacoffee.com slash L-V-O-T-A-P-K-A. Copyright, Lane Vitopka, 2021.